1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Does it feel like 2020? I don't know. I don't know what 2020 is supposed to feel like, but it feels very futury, 2020. Uh, maybe this is the year that you uh, get a new glasses prescription and get 2020 vision. Who knows? I go to the eye doctor tomorrow. We'll see how I'm doing. Um, in this new year, I like to start New Year's off with uh, something that kind of recalibrates us spiritually for a new year. And a lot of times, you know, people are thinking about whether you're one of those people that always sets a goal or always chooses a word for the new year or whatever. Um, you know, people set goals. A lot of times it's go to the gym and they buy a gym membership. You know, gym memberships always go up in January and always go down in February. <laughs> it's, uh, that's just kind of what we do, right? And, uh, you know, it's also the thing where you got that new uh, treadmill or whatever at home and, and this is the month that you use it because it's a new year, and then, uh, you know, the fall is when you sell it on Facebook Marketplace or something for as much as you can get for it, which isn't much, because you should just wait till the next January, someone will steal it from you <laughs> when they're making their new goals. But spiritually, we need to do this as well, and I want to talk for two weeks, it's just a two-week little series here, In It to Win It, um, to talk, and I'm off, actually going to offer you two Challenges. Uh, they're not exactly goals for your new year. Uh, they're two different habits I want to encourage us to incorporate into our life, or two different practices or disciplines, whatever you want to call them, that we would incorporate into our daily life. And so to kind of get us jump-started for that, we've got these two 90-day challenges. I'm going to tell you about one of them today and the other one next week. And we're going to spend our circles time together in the fellowship hall talking about how we can actually set ourselves up for success in these things because we don't want to uh, be those people that start it, you know, and you start strong and then you fade out. Uh, but there's actual things we can do to set ourselves up for better success than that. So we're going to talk about that um, in our circles time this week and next week with these two challenges. Uh, one of the verses we just read in 1 Corinthians 9 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Or we might say run like you're in it to win it. Right? Run your race like you intend to win. Like you're in it to win it. So this is playoff time in football world. And it's, uh, you know, big times for, uh, you know. And I think some of us worried about the last LSU game because it was like, well, you know, they've got all this publicity going on. He's got the Heisman Award. Everyone's winning awards. Are they going to be able to keep their head in the game? Are they going to come out and play like they're in it to win it? 
We do this with uh, sports. You know, a lot of you are wondering if the Saints are going to do that today. Are they going to be out there playing like they're in it to win it? Because sometimes your, your team takes the field and you're like, man, they don't care. Look at those guys. You see that in the NBA a lot because they've got like 80 games they play in the season. And there's not much point in watching until the playoffs because they're not in it to win it until the playoffs, right? Like you, you watch them and you're just like, they're totally not giving a full effort into this thing. So we do this in a lot of things. You see it in game shows or reality TV shows where there's some people you can just tell. They're all in to win. You know, maybe a little too intense sometimes. Uh, some of us with our Christian life as well would say, okay, we can identify the people around us that are in it to win it. And we can probably identify some people that don't appear to be in it to win it. Um, so we're better sometimes at judging others on that kind of Spectrum, But I want to ask you today a personal question, obviously a rhetorical question. I don't need anyone answering me out loud one way or another. But are you in it to win it? When it comes to your faith, when it comes to your relationship with God, would you say that you are in it to win it? Would you say that you're running in such a way as to get the prize? Because at the end of the day... Everything else set aside. All that will matter about you or me is who we are on our knees before God. You and your Creator. That's the connection that matters long term. It's the only thing that matters in the end. So are you in it to win it? In it to win it implies that this is not just, this Christian faith is not just something that's going to happen to you. That it's not just about a decision you made at some point or a prayer you prayed at some point. It implies that there's something, some part you have to play. And you're either playing it or you're not. Now it would be easy for this to turn into a thing of um, that it's, that you are able to win it of your own power. And some people are better at it than others or whatever. Uh, and that's not really the point. The, you can't earn anything with God and you're not strong enough to win anything when it comes to your spiritual life and your relationship with God. However, you have a part to play. This thing with the Holy Spirit doing a work in your life, transforming your life, it's a thing that, yes, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that does it, but he partners with human beings who are either in it to win it or they're not. And what you experience of the Holy Spirit's work in your life will depend greatly on what you do. And we're going to talk about some practices that can set you up for success, that can put you in a relationship with the Holy Spirit that will... Uh, really make a difference in your life that will help you to grow closer to this God who at the end of the day it's all that matters what does he think of you what do you know of him so let's talk about it I want to talk about some things this week that uh, you know a lot of a lot of us have forgotten about 
through the generations and through the years. We've been talking about them more around here lately. Sometimes we call them spiritual disciplines, but they're just practices and habits and things that uh, people do for spiritual formation, to, uh, to develop their spiritual part. You know, during this season when everyone's talking about how do we develop our bodies, how do we eat healthier or work out, uh, let's talk for a few moments about our spiritual health and what are we doing to take care of it and are we in it to win it. So when you look at scripture, when you read, especially in the New Testament, uh, one thing that you probably don't hear explained a lot is how to practice spiritual disciplines. Uh, there's not a lot of stuff written in the New Testament about how to practice silence that we're going to talk about today, or how to practice meditation, or how to study scripture, or how to memorize scripture, or how to fast Right? There's not a whole lot in there about that. And I was trying to think, you know, why is that? And I thought of at least two reasons. One is that everyone in their culture, and still today in Eastern cultures, which was the culture they come from, they already knew and understood how to do this. This was passed on from generation to generation and had been for years. Not just in the Jewish faith, but in other faiths still to this day. People of those Near East, Middle East, Far East cultures understand somehow better than we do in in our day and time. We've kind of lost it over time, it seems. But they still understand uh, these practices. When you talk about fasting or meditation or uh, you know, any of these things, practicing silence and solitude, these are things that not only do they know about, but they've seen modeled by the people around them, by the adults in their life when they're growing up and so forth. So it's not something that needs a big course for them or a lesson on how to do it. Uh, another reason is probably just that, that it's better caught than taught. The apostles that followed Jesus around for those few years. They were with him day and night, night and day, waking and sleeping and eating. And they saw all of his habits firsthand and went on to practice them the way that he practiced them. And they passed that on to the next generation and to the next generation. We have examples of apostles writing letters to their churches, encouraging them to practice the same things that they saw the apostles practice. This was something that was caught more than taught. And so there's not much in the letters that they sent to the churches about here's how you fast or follow this pattern because they had already received that pattern from watching and imitating the apostles. But we know that they practiced these things. We know that Jesus, and we're going to look at this handout here in a little bit, uh, in your bulletin, but one side is just filled with verses that show examples of Jesus practicing these things. And we know that his apostles saw them and practiced them also. We have that recorded for us, that they did them. just doesn't expound much on how they did them. But we know that they practiced fasting, They practiced getting away alone for short periods of time and long periods of time. They practiced prayer. They practiced meditation. They studied and memorized scripture. 
They gathered together regularly for corporate worship. These were things that they engaged in that was part of how they grew spiritually. How they changed from the inside out. As they sought the truth of God and relied on the Spirit of God. In the American church that I grew up in, most of those things were seldom, if ever, talked about. I don't know about you, or your generation, or what you experienced from your church, but mostly what I received growing up, that I think is still somewhat the main mantra of the church today, but maybe even talked about less than when I was a kid, is read your Bible and pray. Right? Read your Bible and pray. That's the pathway to uh, growing spiritually, if you were going to give someone advice, you'd probably tell them, read your Bible and pray. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, we don't hardly know how to pray, and we don't pray very much, do we? And uh, we aren't a lot of times comfortable, if we're honest, reading our Bible. Sometimes you read your Bible and you don't feel like you know what it's saying, or you just don't get much out of it. And so that habit dies away quickly, too. I would point out, just as a point of interest, I guess, that the early Christians, Jesus, his apostles, and really all Christians for the first three centuries or so, really longer than that, they didn't have Bibles like you and I have Bibles. Now, they had the ancient scriptures of the Old Testament, but those were written on scrolls and kept in synagogues. It's not like you went home and broke out your scroll. <laughs> those, those weren't just laying around a dime a dozen. Uh, these things were copied by hand, and so they were special, and they were kept in certain places like that. Uh, they didn't even have a New Testament until it was written down uh, most of the letters written and things like that were written, you know, several decades after Jesus was around and teaching and all that kind of thing. So these things, uh, just, I mean, I, I think it's worth thinking about. These people grew spiritually massively. I don't think any of us would say that, well, Peter and Paul, they weren't transformed much spiritually. They pretty much just stayed the same. Like, you read scripture, you see these accounts of people, and not just them. Regu you know, if you want to call it, put them up on a pedestal, I don't think they'd like that, but uh, if you just take the regular Joes that uh, came to Christ in that first century, the recordings that we have of the Acts of the Apostles where they set up the early church, these people were changed drastically. It upset their communities because of the significant change that took place in their lives. And all this happened without them having a Bible to open, much less on their phone, right? So what did they do? What did they practice? How did they grow spiritually? It wasn't so long ago that our American ancestors were known to do many of the same things that those people did, beyond reading their Bibles and praying. It wasn't so long ago that you would hear of Americans who would commit large portions of Scripture to memory. Some of you may remember parents and grandparents that did that. 
It wasn't so long ago that they would spend extended time alone with the Lord, walking out into the woods or into a field to get away so they could have some space to think, to pray. It wasn't so long ago that you would hear of people wearing out the flooring where they would kneel in prayer on a regular basis. It wasn't so long ago that another generation would meet regularly just for prayer. In a place like this, they would come, not on a Sunday morning, maybe a Sunday night, and they would just pray for a long time, and all the kids are like, oh, <laughs> how long is he going to pray? And these people would show up, like a bunch of them. It wasn't like the holy few, you know, that would show up. And, but no, they would come out in a crowd to gather and to pray. These things happened not so long ago. So surely it's not all lost. And even if it was, even if we didn't know where to start or how to begin in some of these practices, most all of us have disciplined ourselves at some point, in some way in our life. You've played a sport, or you've learned a musical instrument, or you've done a diet, you've worked out at a gym, you've done something in your life that required you to repeatedly do little things that would add up to a big change. And that's how it works, like when you practice an instrument. They wanted me to learn piano when I was a kid, and I gave that up quickly. Because they wanted me to practice these little things over and over. It was so boring. And I didn't like the song Good King Winsless. <laughs> and that's what they wanted me to play. And I just was like, no, you know, no thank you. I'm going to get a guitar and play the Beach Boys. That'll be more fun. But you know... You've done something, whether it's an instrument or something, you know, maybe it's, uh, maybe you lifted weights once upon a time and you have to start with something small and do a lot of boring repetition to be able to get to something bigger and do a more boring repetition, right? But over time, those things add up. So we understand how discipline works. Most of us went through school. And so we know that going to school every day, and studying for tests and all those things can get really monotonous and boring and challenging and frustrating. But we also know that over the course of 12 years, your mind grows a lot. You've changed quite a bit from when you were five to when you were 18. First Corinthians. 9 that we read earlier. It says, everyone who competes in the games, they would be talking about like Olympic games and things that were still happening back then. They go into it, uh, they go into strict training. Right? That's what we're talking about. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. I wonder sometimes if it could be true of us, 
that we spend more time training and disciplining our bodies and ourselves for things that don't last. I mean, I'm all for taking care of your body. I think God is too. But let's face it, you could keep that thing in mint condition and it's still going to expire at some point. There's things you can do at work. There's things you can do in sports or hobbies that, you know, that we spend and invest a lot of time in to get better and better at it. But those things don't last. And the Apostle Paul wants us to remember, just as he wanted that church in Corinth to remember, that there's strict training if we want to grow spiritually. There's strict training if we want to win a crown that never fades. What's true of everything else in life that's worth attaining is also true of this thing that's of greatest worth. If we must discipline ourselves to accomplish anything worthwhile, then surely the thing that is most worthwhile requires the same. Or more. Therefore, he writes, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Whoa. Strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. That's pretty foreign sounding language for us. The gospel of our day and time so often preaches that and teaches that we are just right, just the way we are. That we come into this world just perfect. You know, you'll hear, live your truth or uh, be who you, you know, were created to be, born to be. I was born this way, I'm owning that, I'm celebrating it. Whereas the gospel of Jesus says we must deal a blow to our body, to our flesh, and bring it into submission to God's truth and God's ways. It's a matter of discipline. There's no discipline needed if you just want to follow and pursue whatever you feel and desire. Whatever comes natural. Just sit back and go for it, man. But if you want to change, which is what God asks us to do as we follow Jesus, then, yes, the way our body is now, the natural desires that it has, the natural inclinations that it has, those have to be brought into submission to His way. And that's a different sort of thing. And so it requires discipline. It requires us sometimes to deprive ourselves of what ourselves want. Just like a diet, right? Just like a diet. Sometimes yourself wants all the cookies. But you have to tell yourself, no. No. 
<laughs> if you don't tell yourself no at some point, you know, we know where that takes you. <laughs> well, the same is true of Christianity. And in fact, Jesus modeled these things for us. You know, sometimes we think Jesus just showed up and he was, you know, super Jesus. You know, he could he had scripture memorized. I think for most of my life I just assumed that he came pre-recorded with scripture. I don't know if you've ever thought that or not, but I, like the guy was just quote scripture and I'm like, "Well, he's Jesus. God probably like implanted it in his brain supernaturally, you know? He just knew it." And then as I've grown older, I realized, you know, Jesus was also fully human. His body and brain worked the same way that our body and brain work. So all that scripture he put in there, he memorized. Jesus showed up and the first thing that he did was fast for an extended period of time and pray for an extended period of time. He would stay up all night praying, being alone, I submit to you that you can't do that if you haven't been practicing for a long time. It would be like uh, a, a weightlifter guy just showing up and saying, yeah, put all the weights on there. This is my first time, but I got this. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. You start out at like five pounds and you go from there, right? You, Jesus was the same way. I mean, you really think that he just showed up and pulled an all-nighter talking to God when he had never talked to God before that time. You know, we, we sit down to pray for the first time. We're like, this is hard. I'm distracted. I don't think I can do this. I'm just not a praying kind of person. Well, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, None of these things do, right? Jesus practiced all these things and I would submit to you that if you want to be a Christian, which would be a little Christ, a follower of Jesus, then you have to do the same things. And so do I. And so did his apostles. They had to do the same things. Can you imagine someone saying, well, I'm a basketball player and I don't ever practice dribbling or shooting. That's what it would be like to say, I'm a Christian but I don't ever practice silence and solitude. Or, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a hunter, but I don't ever, like, target practice, never really did that. Okay, how do you hit the deer? Like, you've got to practice at some point, right? Um, so that was what, that's what it would be like if you were a Christian who said, you know, I just, praying's not my thing. Or, uh, you know, I don't really practice meditating on Scripture, studying Scripture, memorizing Scripture. Can you imagine someone saying, like, I'm a musician, okay, well, play me something. Uh, I got nothing. <laughs> no, just one song, play me one song. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm a musician. Or a Navy SEAL. Right? They have to practice holding their breath underwater. 
be like a Christian that says, you know, I don't fast. It'd be like a Navy SEAL. No, I never really did the underwater thing. <laughs> it's not for me. I don't like water. <laughs> I don't like holding my breath. So, you know, that one's out. But I'm good with a gun. <laughs> you know, these things... Here's something interesting. None of those things are the point of those things. Like, the point of being a basketball player is not to practice dribbling and shooting. The point of being a weightlifter is not uh, to do a bunch of reps. The point of being a hunter is not to target practice. The, the point of being a Navy SEAL is not to see how long you can hold your breath under the water. However, that's what you do to become that person, right? It's, it's just, so like, maybe the point of being a basketball player is to score points and win games. Okay, but the way that you come to a point where you can actually do that is through the practice of bouncing the ball, shooting the ball. Right? The point of the Navy SEAL is to go in and neutralize the enemy or whatever the, you know, the situation is, but to do that They've got to discipline themselves in certain ways to have the skill set to do what they're supposed to do. The point of being a Christian is to become the kind of person who loves God and loves others the way Jesus did. But the only way to become that kind of person is to practice the things that Jesus practiced to become that kind of person. And so we have to practice the things that Jesus taught and modeled for us to practice. If we want to become the kind of person he was. So I want to talk to you about spiritual disciplines for a second. And this is kind of part one this week. And next week is part two. And this week I want to talk to you just for a moment about uh, disciplines of abstinence. These are kinds of practices and things that I know abstinence has its own connotation. We think of one thing when we think of abstinence, but it's bigger than that. Disciplines of abstinence are just things where we uh, basically we deprive ourselves of something natural and good in order to gain spiritual freedom. So you might deprive yourself of food, and that would be called fasting. Yes, you might uh, deprive yourself of sexuality. That might be called chastity. Uh, you might deprive yourself of noise, and that might be called silence. You might deprive yourself of uh, human companionship for a minute, and that might be called solitude. These are things that we do without for a time period so that we can gain spiritual freedom and learn to rely on God. One of the most important ones, I believe, of these, and I'm not, I didn't come up with it on my own, I've, you know, this is one that, one, you see throughout the Gospels that describe Jesus' life, is silence and solitude. Those often go together because it's hard to find silence without solitude. Silence. And solitude. If you've got this sheet here in your bulletin, it lists uh, some of the spiritual disciplines on the back, the disciplines of abstinence. We'll have another one next week that will list uh, disciplines of engagement, which are 
practices by which we immerse ourselves in something good in order to gain spiritual growth. So we'll talk about that next week. But look at the verses, the, the side that says, train as Jesus trained. I'm just going to breeze through these quickly. In Matthew 4 is when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness by himself. He fasted. In Mark 1, we have a description of very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up before everyone else, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. In Luke 5, we read about um, that as news was spreading farther, crowds were growing bigger, and Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. As his life got noisier, more he would slip away. Luke 6 describes that a time when he went off to the mountain to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. In Matthew 14, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray and it was evening and he was there alone. Do you think they're trying to emphasize something? Went up by himself. He was there alone. <laughs> Just in case that wasn't clear the first time. John 6. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Matthew 26. This is when he took his disciples, right? Right before he was about to be crucified. He said, come and pray with me. He took a few of them a little further, and then he went on by himself, asked them to be praying with him in this quiet garden at this critical time. Sometimes one story from Scripture doesn't tell the whole story. Sometimes you need to see the pattern. And in the Gospels, we have a pattern of practices of Jesus that were observed by his closest followers day in and day out. Things that he practiced to become the Jesus that we know and read about. Things that they went on to practice as he practiced them. Do you know the Apostle Paul did a similar thing where he went out into the wilderness for a long period of time when he first became a believer? Before he set out into ministry? He mimicked what Jesus modeled. We have examples of the Apostle Peter taking time alone and quiet in prayer. And that's when he received an important vision once. They practiced these same things. Surely we must do likewise. I want to share with you, as we kind of wrap things up, some words from a, a kind of a familiar guy. So if you grew up in my generation, or a little older than me, or a little younger than me, then you may have grown up with this guy, uh, and you'd know him as Mr. Rogers. And his name is Fred Rogers. He was a Methodist minister. I believe Methodist. Sounds right. Let's go with it. And, but he had a heart for children and devoted his life to 
television programs for children. And I read something not that long ago that said um, that the only show that doesn't seem to affect, only children's show that doesn't seem to shorten their attention span is Mr. Rogers. It was oftentimes just a conversation with him, right? Just talking about life. I found a couple of interviews that he did with Charlie Rose in the 90s, and I wanted to play you just a couple of clips from that as we begin to wrap this up. Who's made a difference in your life? Oh, a lot of people. But a lot of people who have allowed me to have some silence. And I don't think we give that gift very much anymore. I'm very concerned that our society is much more interested in information than wonder, in noise rather than silence. How do we do that? I mean, in our business, yours and mine, how do we encourage reflection? I trust that this book will do some of that, but Oh my, this is a noisy world. You seem to be the calmest person I know. Soft-spoken. You have a quality that is reassuring. Is that the way your entire being is? At the center of Fred, there is this stability, this sense of self, this sense of mission, this sense of calmness. Because you know who you are, you know... You're sure about the connection to your God? I get up every morning at least by five, have a couple hours of quiet time, uh, reflect about what it is that is important. Before you get on with the business of the day? Before I go swimming. (laughs) (laughs) And then the business of the day. But... What do you think we can do, those of us who are purveyors of this television medium? What can we do to encourage people to have more quiet in their lives, to more silence? Real revelation comes through silence. I'm certainly not as centered as you are, and I can only look at you with a certain amount of envy and also um, admonishment to because there is something to be admired about the kind of life that you have lived. Mine is more frenetic, and I'm more, I'm, I'm much more about sort of gulping in as much of it as I can find. I want to see everything, do everything, feel everything. I mean, I'm, you're an I'm a hopeless case. <laughs> you're what an enthusiastic man. <laughs> Did you notice that Charlie Rose was saying that Like there's something about you. You have a presence about you that's calming, reassuring. I don't know if you've ever encountered someone like that that just had a presence about them. One time I was at a conference and a speaker took the stage. She was kind of a Mother Teresa type of person. And I've heard people talk about Mother Teresa in this way as well. That like when you're around certain people, they just have like an aura about them, a presence that goes with them. And 
this lady's name was Mama Maggie, and she was an Egyptian version of Mother Teresa. Did very similar work and all, but uh, she emphasized this issue of silence and the necessity of it. And she said, it's in silence that you may leave many to be with the one. And she said this mantra, which has stuck with me, though I don't always have it quite as straight in my head, but I get the general principle of it. Maybe I'll go ahead and apply it to memory. But she said, silence your body, your busyness, to listen to words. And silence your tongue to listen to your thoughts. Silence your thoughts to listen to your heart beating. Silence your heart to listen to your spirit. And silence your spirit to listen to his spirit. It's a good process. Sometimes when I'm trying to quiet myself, I go through a process like that of just, okay, be still. I'll quiet my thoughts, my words. Quiet my spirit. It takes practice to get any good at it. Fred Rogers apparently practiced a couple hours every day. I told somebody, I don't think he had young kids at home at that point. <laughs> not sure how. I mean, sometimes I'm up at 5 a.m., but it's usually not quiet if I am. But these things, these people that have this presence about them, something special about them, sometimes we just think, well, that's just because of who they are or what they do or the way they were born. They're just a special person. And in fact, I'll bet you nine times out of ten, if you find out what they do, how they spend their time, how they discipline themselves, the quiet time that they spend getting to know themselves and their God. You'd find something in common. There's a quote from Fred Rogers. says, Most of us have so few moments like that in our lives, the quiet moments. There's noise everywhere. There are some places we can't even escape it. He said, television and radios are probably the worst culprits. So that dates when he said it, right? We've got so much more noise now, don't we? In so many different ways that it fills our spaces. He says they're very seductive. And it's so tempting for some of us to turn on the television set or the radio or pull out our phone, right? Uh, when they first walk into a room or get in the car to fill any space with noise. He said, I wonder what some people are afraid might happen in the silence. Some of us must have forgotten how nourishing silence can be. That kind of solitude goes by many names. It may be called meditation, or deep relaxation, or quiet time, or downtime. In some circles it may even be criticized as daydreaming, but whatever it's called, it's a time away from outside stimulation during which inner turbulence can settle. And we have a chance to become more familiar with ourselves, and we could add more familiar with our God. 
I want to invite you to become more familiar with your God and more familiar with your own self as well and the relationship between you and God. I want to invite you to a challenge, a 90-day approximately challenge that will end uh, Palm Sunday, April 5th, in which we're going to practice silence. And I'm going to spend the circle's time today talking about how practically to set yourself up for success with that. And whether you're normally in a circle during this time or not, it doesn't matter. You're welcome to come and join us for that. And we'll give you uh, some resources that can help set you up for success as we learn to integrate this habit into our daily lives. Hopefully not just for 90 days, but maybe that's enough to get us started. We live in a noisy world. If Jesus needed to get away regularly from all the noise to stay connected with his Father, then surely you and I do as well. Follow Jesus. Embrace a new way of living, a new way of life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for meeting us in the silence. We confess our attraction to noise. So Holy Spirit, please still our hearts. Amen.